I'm Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to Farm Equipment's Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps podcast. In this episode, host Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC talks with Ray Bohex, the Hot Rod Farmer. Before we head over to Casey and Ray, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Volvo Penta. With the perfect combination of strength and versatility, Volvo Penta engines supply industrial operations with durable and reliable performance. To learn more, visit www.volvopenta.com. If this is your first time listening, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you're alerted when each new episode is released. Okay, let's get things going. Here's Casey and Ray as they discuss Ray's background in automotive, as well as what he's done to help educate farmers about their machinery. And then they get into the right to repair movement. Today, my guest is Ray Bohax, and Ray is the hot rod farmer. You probably see him on uh, about all over the place because Ray's a busy man. Ray's got a uh, show on XM Radio 147 Rural Radio called Farm Machinery Digest Radio. He also has a podcast called Idle Chatter Podcast, and you hear him on the Moving Iron Podcast with his uh, bushels and cents. So, Ray, welcome to the show, man. Hey, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Casey, for having me on. It's an honor, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity to connect with your audience today. Yeah, Ray, Ray's, uh, Ray and I, Ray's been on the podcast once before, and you know, Ray and I have had a, a working relationship here for the past uh, couple of years or so, and, and you know, we kind of hit each other up from time to time about what's going on, and, and and uh, I thought Ray would be a good person to have come on and talk about what is happening in the marketplace right now with uh, right to repair. So before we get to that part, Ray, why don't you give just a, a brief background of who you are and, and, and kind of what your history is in the automotive business and the agriculture business and, and all these different things and, and kind of how we why, why I have you on the podcast and I'll talk about right to repair. Okay, certainly. I thank you for that. Uh, basically, I've grown up with two passions in my life, both agriculture and, and the automobile industry, specifically engines. And uh, we have a farm in New Jersey with sweet corn growers. So that's where I got the, the dirt under my fingernails. But I also got the grease under my fingernails because I love cars and love machinery of all types. And my uh, dream was to become, you know, the dream of a young boy is it has no boundaries. So my dream was to become a mechanical engineer in Detroit working for an auto company and some and also be a farmer and run our family farm. Uh, like I said, a young boy doesn't recognize the fact that that's 650 miles apart and there's no way that could <laughs> right. basically happen. Right. But uh, we don't let details ruin dreams. But anyway, <clears throat> what I did is I pursued a degree in engineering and state and do to family circumstances had to, could not go to Detroit and and remained on the family farm. And excuse me, I also got involved with building drag race engines, and that's why I call myself the hot rod farmer. And then I worked for a number of years in the auto industry when I was in college. I worked in a Buick dealership, and I did all of what we would call what the industry called, the car industry called drivability problems. So, and I was, excuse me, was able to come on board with the early engine management systems, which really is the precursor to everything that we see today on, on advanced farm equipment, be it tier four or some sort of control logic. And I was able to, to, to work in that segment. And I got a job when I graduated college and stayed on the farm, but got a, what we call in town job. And I got a job with an oscilloscope manufacturing emissions analyst a company called Allen Test Products, and I became a training instructor and technical demonstrator. So my whole career path in the automobile industry was basically in, a, in engine, what we call engine management systems. And that is, like I said, it's the precursor to everything you find on modern farm equipment. And then I got involved with magazine writing, and I was writing for car, my career for 23 years, I've been writing for car magazines. And then also I saw a need to bring what I called automotive style articles and education to the agricultural community because the agricultural community did a very good job as far as agronomy, farm succession, marketing, but they were very weak as far as teaching the farmer about their machinery. And I'm, I'm not talking about how to drive it. I'm talking about the mechanics of how it works. So I got involved with Successful Farming Magazine. I was writing for them for a number of years and was on their TV show, but they frustrated me because they really didn't see the value in educating the farmer um, more than just giving him enough to get in trouble. So that was the impetus for me to start my 
Farm Machinery Digest website, which is basically all educational, and my Idle Chatter podcast. And then just this past January, I was recognized by Sirius XM Rural Radio uh, to bring my show onto their network. And that's and through the podcast world, that's how I, I met you, as you said in before, but interestingly enough, like this industry, we've talked, we've been on each other's show, but we never met each other. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly it's, right. That's exactly you know, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, uh, if I sat on a plane next to you, I wouldn't know who you are and, uh, <laughs> unless I recognize your voice. Yeah, that, that's exactly the truth. That's I have a lot of friends in the world that, that are like that, that I know very well, but I, I don't know that I could pick them out in a crowd. So it's uh, it's definitely a, a small world, Ray. All right, man. Well, let's let's jump into this. This is a uh, hot button issue across the uh, across the industry as a whole. And as you step back and take a look at what's going on, okay. Um, and go ahead. I'm going to forewarn your audience okay. is that I have, and I say it humbly, I think I have a unique perspective on this simply because I come from the auto industry and all of this, this right to repair the engine management systems, the control logics, and obviously on a piece of farm equipment, you have other things other than engine management. We, this is nothing new to the car and is nothing new to the car industry. And to tell you the truth, uh, anything that you could go, you could see the most advanced, I'll use combine, sprayer, farm tractor, whatever, something with an engine uh, that's in the agricultural community, that technology we had 40 years ago in the car industry. The only thing the car industry didn't have was auto steer, but everything else. So people think that this is really new technology. It's not new technology. It's new being implemented to the agricultural community. So if, so everything that we have, matter of fact, even most of the connectors that are used on modern farm equipment other than a, a CAN bus connector are, are, based, are Delco designed connectors. That's what I say PED on them, which was the Packard Electronic Division of General Motors. So this comes all from the car industry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and forth between the two communities because it really is the proper segue. And the, so I want to establish to the audience right now is that, number one, I am 110% for the right to repair. But I will put a caveat on that as, as we progress. And the other thing I want to establish is that, and I'm speaking loudly, there is no bad guy in this. The farmer is not the bad guy. The, the, the farm equipment manufacturer is not the bad guy. The dealer is not the bad guy. There's no bad guy here. And in today's world, the news media tries to divide us. And there's no reason for being for this division. There is no bad guy here. It's just a new technology. There's new there's new capabilities, and we all have to sort this out. But I'm going to ask you a question, Casey, okay. because of your association with the industry, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. But what? And I cannot glean this from anybody. <laughs> what are the expectation of those that are pushing for right to repair? You know, that's a good question because when, when you when you step back and look at what they're asking for, um, everything that they're asking for, when you listen to any news media or any bill that gets presented or anything like that, that they that that's not available, that they you know they keep asking for, it's all available. Diagnostic equipment is available. There's uh, service advisor you can you can get that and that that you can plug that into your to your john deere piece of equipment and it'll it'll tell you everything that's wrong in your machine it'll tell you diagnostic codes read codes all those kind of things um so those 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 tools are available to me i think it's more of a altering the performance of the machine um is is a bigger underlying issue that i think people that are uh, very big advocates for this are looking for i don't i don't know i mean that's that's the only piece of the puzzle that that's really not available out there you know turning up engines and changing shift points and transmissions and so on and so forth i mean you there's so much stuff you can do if if you understand how, how to manage those codes and 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 change the code inside the processors on the machine so to me it's it's not so much I want to be able to diagnose my machine. It's it's I want to be able to, you know, change the performance of my machine, change my 300 horsepower tractor to a 400 horsepower tractor. I think that's the underlying issue there when when I read between the lines because what they're asking for is available. 
I agree with you a thousand percent. The thing is that yes, and you know there are so many right now. There are so many different scan tools, uh, diesel laptop, J Pro, what have you, that will, will enable you to certain levels access well, at least the engine and a lot of the subsystems on the engine and what I with the subsystems which like which I would call it the, in the combine the header controls or a spray or what have you. So those so so when I stand back and I look at this and I and I agree with you is to say, okay, what's all this hubbub about? Because this technology, this ability is available, but the 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 availability comes with a price tag. Right. And if you would and if you were to look for instance and if you have diff, let's say you're a fairly large farm and you have a couple of semis to haul grain that are tier I'm gonna say all tier four, not pump line nozzle stuff that this can integrate with, and you have a couple of semis and you have a mixed fleet of different color equipment well, you're probably going to end up spending six to nine thousand dollars on my rough estimate, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little more, to be able to integrate with all of that equipment. As far as now going back to the car industry, what and what what happens is that you'll have an we'll call it an ECU in the auto industry. We used to call it an ECF engine management control mm-hmm. module, but now since it controls other things, we'll call it an ECU, an electronic control module. Now what what happens? is that this ECU has the ability to talk to the engine, the engine talks back to the ECU, and the ECU talks to different aspects of the farm equipment, and the farm equipment talks back to it. How does it talk? It talks through sensors, all right? So a sensor takes a mechanic, and I don't care whether it's your combine, or whether it's your grain elevator, or your boiler in your house. A sensor takes a mechanical state and converts it to a voltage, because an ECU is speaking electricity. It doesn't understand anything else. It doesn't understand the rotor speed on a combine, but it understands what a certain sine wave coming off that sensor is. So now we have this this conversation going back and forth. And then what's happening is that this conversation is presented through some through a tool that people are asking for which as you said is available and it's and it's identified as serial data s e r i a l it's serial data and because what it does is it speaks for the most part it speaks in a digital language and what this tool does in the industry it's called a scan tool it takes this serial data and it knows if you're working on a John Deere combine that this is this this is the the, the data stream that the first thing is rotor speed, the second thing is coolant temperature, what have you, are making things up. If you go to a case combine or you go to a Ford pickup truck, the data is there, but it may be presented in a different order. And that's what this tool does. So the first thing, number one, is that we have this serial data stream. The fallacy, like you were saying, a lot of misinformation out there, is that people talk about codes, right? Now, within the industry, like I said, it's no different because even you take a company like Case IH New Holland, for example, they're owned by what's no longer FCA. They're owned by Stellantis, which is a car company, right? So okay. this logic to prove is, is all automotive based. And the thing is that, so now we, we have this serial data stream and it's going to talk. It's going to talk to this scanner. Well, without understanding the language, we do not know what it means. Just like I could listen, I could sit in an airplane and listen to somebody speaking Portuguese. I have, I could hear them. I don't know what it means. So the thing is that with all of these tools, that there has to be an educational learning curve. I could go buy a CNC milling machine if I have enough money in my checkbook, and I could buy it and I could have it shipped here to my farm. I would not know how to turn it on. I would not know how to use it. So that is one thing that comes into play. The other fallacy is that you and you would say, and respectfully you would use the word codes now within the industry the term code you could say you write code for a microprocessor which is actually the program all right so in the industry when we say it has a code all right it's a misnomer to call the calibration a code the calibration is just like you could buy a, a, a CD or a cassette tape and there's music on it so you buy
buy one CD and it has John Denver. You buy another CD, it has something else. The dynamics of, of so that is the calibration. So so it's not it's not coded calibration. So now the misnomer is that people think that they're going to have a problem with their piece of equipment, whatever it may be, and they have a problem and it has some sort of what we would call the industry a telltale, whether it's a service engine soon light or some sort of warning light. The light lights up and say, okay, this is not this is not working properly and it puts the machine in some sort of possibly a default strategy. Now a default strategy is is deliberately programmed into the calibration. And probably the best example of a default strategy is if a if a tier four engine that uses SCR runs out of DEF. The DEF, the diesel exhaust fluid is sprayed after the the engine doesn't care about the diesel exhaust fluid. It has nothing to do with the combustion event. It's way downstream after the combustion event. But the strategy of the of the piece of equipment, the engine going into limpo mode is part of the calibration to force you to want to, to fix this. Because if they didn't force you to fix it and give you poor performance, nobody would fix it. So the thing is that this calibration is there. So we now the people get confused. And when I listen to the news like you did or listen to read blogs or what have you, and they always find somebody who's going to say, well, if I had the if I could read the trouble codes, I could fix it. Well, on a piece of diagnostic equipment or a piece of piece of equipment that has advanced technology, advanced control strategies on it, the trouble codes 95% of the time, 99% of the time are a circuit code. They're not telling you that the wire behind the cab of the combine, the blue wire three feet away from the seat, oh. a mouse ate it and it's touching <laughs> the ground, and that's right. why yeah. that's why your header doesn't want to go up. You know what I'm saying? And there's this, there's this, and I I keep seeing this repeated dialogue. Well, if I had the codes, you could fix it. Well, the codes without understanding the circuitry, the codes without a service manual or shop manual, and the codes without some sort of ability to read something, all right, to read, to understand this data and maybe use an oscilloscope and use a voltmeter properly, all right, or use a frequency meter is going to be meaningless. It's going to, just like me buying the CNC milling machine, I do not know how to use it. So the fact of the matter is, is that if we go into something, we have to, I think that there's a false narrative being promoted by who, I have no idea, saying that you're going to get this machine, this scanner, this tool, you're going to have access to this. No one talks about the cost to the farmer for the access for this equipment. They just say they want to have access to it. Well, I would like to have a Rogator sprayer, but then I'm not going to get it for free. You know what I'm saying? Right. So the yep. thing is that, so now, so we have this, so, we, so let's say arguably we have this access. Now, to back, to back up a little bit to your point, that people want to modify the engine. They want to turn up the horsepower. They want to do whatever they want to do. Look, I'm a hot rod farmer. I made my living doing that. <laughs> so you don't have to convince me. Right. I, mean, yeah. you know, you know, I mean, it's like the country song says, there can't be a girl too pretty or an engine too, a car, car too fast or an engine too powerful. Right. But the fact of the fact of the matter is, is that, in, in, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll go to the pickup truck industry, which is the auto industry. You could buy different caliber for a diesel-powered pickup truck, all right? Then you could buy this uh, SCT tuner or Hypertech. There's a whole handful of different companies that have these tuners for for vehicles, for vehicles, on-road vehicles that go and they can, you could turn up you could turn up the power. And almost every kid that has a diesel pickup truck has done that to some extent, all right? And the thing is that, and that's that's all well and good, but the but the fact of the matter is is that when as an engineer who came from the auto industry is that when something comes to market, be a combine or be it a pickup truck or be a car, is that they only bring the power level to a certain point because they want to they want to have a safety zone, just like a half-ton pickup truck carry more than a thousand pounds, but they want to have a safety zone. And what happens is that when you go and you turn up these calibrations on anything, is that depending upon the level you turn it up, you're minimizing that safety zone or actually going past that safety zone. So the thing that becomes very ugly here, and I said there is no bad guy, is that if you, and there are products right now on the market that you could take your combine or your farm tractor and independently of, of having any right to repair, that you could put another controller in line to it that's going to trick everything and increase the power. But 
keep in mind is that, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm a drag racer. I'm a hot rod farmer, so there's no, I mean, that's, but keep in mind that whenever you increase the power in something, that you are basically reducing or eliminating the safety net that the manufacturer put into that engine or that drive line or that turbocharger so that it gives you an acceptable level of life. And anybody who is a tractor puller or a racer of some side knows that when you start to make power, you start to break parts. But to your point, I don't understand how where this dialogue came from because in the auto industry 25 years ago we had the right to repair legislation and succinctly what happened is that engine management systems on road vehicles on cars and pickup trucks came out for the most part for the 1981 model year and that was called obd1 which stood for onboard diagnostics first generation and and the company that developed all of this to the highest level which is the model that the agricultural industry uses today in the car industry was general motors because they had the ability they were the first ones and they I'll say invented or brought to market this ability to read a serial data stream. Back in the early 1980s, if you had a Ford or if you had a Chrysler product or you had a BMW, there was no data stream for you to read. You could not eavesdrop on that conversation that the computer was having with the engine and back and forth. And then what had happened was that for, and, and scan, scan tools were available. There was no legislation that you couldn't buy it. But then again, you were buying a tool and you said, I don't understand this. What am I looking at? You know, so the thing is, then for the 1996 model year in the auto industry, what had happened was that they came out with OBD2, which was onboard diagnostic second generation, and the EPA mandated that a certain amount of the serial data that every manufacturer who sold a, a light-duty vehicle in the United States needed to provide serial data and they needed to use a common language. But they also mandated that they only had to identify this part in serial data. You, have, you were in a hotel and you had access to all the rooms except the, the executive suite up on the top, and that was specific to the manufacturer. Now, what was different back in the auto industry is that the auto repair shops lobbied for the right to repair. And the thing is that you don't see so much with the agricultural side where the independent repair, farm equipment repair person is lobbying for this. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But it was not the consumer, the car owner, that was lobbying for this to the government. Now, keep in mind in the auto industry, what drove the right to repair, the legislation of the right to repair, to give auto repair shops the ability to buy more access into this was to give the consumer the consumer, Mrs. Jones, the ability to choose to have her car fixed at Ray's repair shop because she liked Ray versus going back to the car dealer. And and that's really what drove it because the the auto repair industry as a segment did not have a lobby industry and did not vote. But the consumer, so they gave the auto repair, the federal government gave the auto repair industry the right to repair legislation, all right, so that they could serve the consumer. It was not, they didn't give a damn about the auto repair shop. Now, what's happening in agriculture is that it seems that this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Casey, this is more driven by the end user, which is the farmer or rancher, the equipment owner, than the independent repair industry. Is that analysis incorrect or is that true? No, I think you're right. From what I can tell, it's, that's where it's coming from. We'll get back to Casey and Ray in a moment, but first I wanted to pause to thank our sponsor, Volvo Penta. To learn more, visit www.volvopenta.com. Now back to Casey and Ray as they continue their discussion on right to repair and how what is going on in the ag industry today around the issue is similar to what happened in the automotive industry back in the 90s. So that makes it a little bit different because the thing is that you don't have a you know a consumer reports you know going and push and pushing for this. All right. So the thing is that, but now the question comes about is that we get this legislation, like I said, which I'm a hundred percent, hundred ten percent for. We should have the right to 
we should have the right to access this. And if I had an independent farm equipment repair shop, I would be pushing for this because I would not want to, no disrespect to a dealer, I would not want to have to send a good customer back to the dealer to fix something or to integrate with something that I could do if I had the equipment and the ability to do it. But what no one is talking about here is the learning curve. And it gets back to what I said earlier on a few minutes ago, is that there's this false narrative, this false impression that you're going to plug this thing in and it's going to tell you what's wrong. I came wrong with the, with the engine, the vehicle, the equipment, what have you. I came from the automotive diagnostic community. And back years ago, I would demonstrate oscilloscopes and advanced scan tools to people who wanted to get involved in that auto shops and car dealers. But the fact of the matter is, is that this was back years ago, it was $30,000. It was big money. All right. So the thing is that I'd say, don't get, don't, this is not, you know, utopia. You're not going to plug this thing in under the dashboard and, and you're going to find out what's going on with this car. You're going to find out right. a trouble code. All right. You have an engine that's misfiring. You put a oscilloscope on. If you don't know how to read a scope pattern, it's just like, where a oscilloscope is just like an EKG machine. If I don't know how to read an EKG machine, I think I could be having a heart attack. I don't know what the heck it's saying to me. So right. the thing is that, and I think that that's a fallacy that's here, and we're pushing this legislation, which I then again, I'm for, but the fact of the matter is, let's say you, a, a farmer A goes and buys a combine, and the reason why I'm picking on a combine because it's such a large investment and it has such a long shelf life because it's not used all year round. So he buys a combine, three, four, five, six hundred thousand, whatever number you want to say. All right, he buys his combine, and most farm equipment is covered by warranty for you're in the business. How many? How many years? One year, two year? How Typically, many a combine's a year. Yeah. Yeah, so come by. So it gets good. So, so possibly, maybe if he plans his purchase correctly, he get through two harvest seasons or right. almost two harvest seasons, right? Right. And then, and anything that would happen that he would be that it would be covered under warranty. Now, I understand the geographic distance, and I understand all of this and what have you. But the fact of the matter is, is that so now we get to this year or two. So now, so now he's out of warranty. If he doesn't buy an extended warranty, he's out of warranty, and now he has this combine year two, year three, year four year five, year six, right? It's very conceivable that he has no problem with his combine or no problem that would require him to interface into this serial data stream. So if he doesn't have a problem with this combine, all right, for, for three years, four years, five years, I mean, what are people thinking that on year, on year three when the warranty is up, they're going to spend six or $7,000 for a scan tool that they don't know how to use or $2,000 for a scan tool they don't know how to use in anticipation that on year seven, they may have a code in the combine header? Yeah, that, that's I mean, that's a point that I, I want to reinforce there a little bit is, you know, our, our technicians that go out and work on this stuff, um, they plug their laptop in and it brings up, you know, or they go out and look at the code that that's on the screen or whatever it is that's out there. And they still have to spend time understanding the system that they're looking at and, and, and tracking down whatever that problem is. It just all it says is that here's a code and it says that, you know, X, Y, Z. Is, has failed. That circuit, yeah. that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. the circuit code. They still have to go it's figure out what's making that happen. It's not like it just goes and automatically says, like you said, the blue wire three feet from the cab that the mouse chewed up, that, that's what your problem is. Right. It doesn't say that. That's it, what your problem is. It's got a big neon light pointing to it. If, you know I, if I could say every every cuss word that was coming out of the shop I and mean, they spent four or five or six hours trying to figure out chasing down an electrical issue on a combine, because of what the code said. I mean, it points them in the right direction, but I mean, I'm, it's, it's not that simple. And you've got, no, it's not. you got these technicians that have spent, you know, a new system comes out, we'll spend 15 to 25 hours worth of just specific training on one little thing, one tiny little thing, not, not the broad machine, but just this one little spectrum of that machine so they can understand what it means to go out and fix it. Exactly, and that's what I saw 25 years ago in the car business. Now, if you look at you look at, look at an engine or look at a combine, we keep going back and forth the combine, mm. or, or well, let's go, we'll bounce back and forth between a combine and a pickup truck. All right, the thing basically is is that if, if, that, particular, if that particular application in that circuit uses a Hall effect switch, which is a three-wire switch, but it's a, people call it a sensor, but it's actually called a switch because it's on and off, and it produces a square wave. 
And I know for a fact that some John Deere combines, only because I had a listener interface with me, all right, use that as a turbocharger over speed sensor. Right. Uh, some of them use a sine wave, which is a two-eye sensor, but this particular, I don't remember what model was a couple of years ago. So this guy would go, and this is a real case example, he would go into the field, he would start to harvest his, his crop, I think it was, uh, he was harvesting wheat, and, uh, and the thing would go into D-rate because it, it had an overspeed in the turbocharger. So the thing, and no disrespect to whoever the technician was that looked at it and what have you. So he came back and he, so he called it, called the technician in and uh, the guy said, okay, he's overspeed code on it. So what is the, what happens is that the technician was not a good technician. His good technicians is bad technicians. Right. Good farmers is bad farmers. Yep, like doctors, bad yep. doctors. The thing basically is that he goes and puts a sensor in it. All right. This is out of warranty. Puts a sensor in it. All right. He, right, he, he uses his laptop, which basically is just you being used as a scanner, has a certain uh, special software with a cable that interfaces. And then he erases the code. The guy goes back out to the field. Same thing happens. I don't know whether it took him an hour to, I don't know what same thing happened to make a long story short what basically happened is that you needed to be able to use an oscilloscope to read that sensor output the sensor output was clean that what was happening is the combine had a high impedance ground and it was cross talking into that wire it was cross-talking into that wire and skewing that sensor, that signal going into the ECU. So instead of the ECU thinking that I'm making up an arbitrary number, that the, that the, com that the uh, compressor speed on the turbocharger was 80,000 RPM, it thought it was 100,000 RPM or 120,000 RPM because of this, what they call EMI, electromotive interference. So basically... In essence, the proper protocol, and I'm sure if, he, if the technician followed the John Deere steps, it would say confirm the signal at the ECU, but to confirm the signal at the ECU for a Hall effect sensor, Hall effect switch, or, 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 or a, a, sine, a sine wave or something like that, you need to look at that as an, on an oscilloscope because you need to be able to see a visual picture of that circuit. So now we say we have the scan tool, we know where to look, we know where to look. It'll be just like if you have water leaking out of the wall, out of, the wall of your house, the plumber will say, okay, we see that there's a water leaking, we know that there's a bad pipe. Lady, I gotta cut a hole in your ceiling and see which pipe is leaking, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then he cuts the hole in the ceiling, and says, oh geez, right, there's no water leaking over here, it's leaking in the kitchen. I thought it was about, it's following the beam down. So like I said, this is, and I'm, and I'm not implying that the farmer or anybody who wants this cannot learn this. But my question, it's a rhetorical question to you, it's a rhetorical question to all our listeners, are you willing to make the financial and time investment to learn this because in the anticipation that five years from now, three years from now, two years from now, that you may have a potential problem? And as a businessman, I would say no. We had a, a, a uh, Electrolux vacuum cleaner. I love to fix stuff. Mm -hmm. You needed a special tool to take the vacuum cleaner apart to access what they call the powerhead. I'm not going to spend time buying a $100 tool that I'm going to use one time, never maybe use it again. I said to my wife, bring it to the guy in town, let him fix it for $75. I don't want to get involved with it. So, I mean, is, is, was Electrolux a bad guy? No. Was the vacuum cleaner guy a bad guy? No. You know, was my wife a big guy? No. So the thing is that you really have to identify and, and, you know, within the agricultural community, do we go to school to become an agronomist to do everything at our farms? No, most likely no. There are some people that are agronomists and come back to the farm. But should we have, an, have a knowledge of agronomy so that we could be a successful farmer? Yes. Yep. All right. But do we, we often sublet things out in this industry and every industry does that because it does not, you, 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 you can't have enough knowledge or enough equipment or enough, it very quickly con converts over from being a business model to becoming a hobby. Yeah, and, exactly. And hobbies, you never make money on hobby. Not very often, no. 
No. no. So the thing, the thing basically is when I look at this, you know, the, the car industry is full of that. The, every industry is full of that. We have advanced equipment today. We have advanced control strategies. But if you think you know, years of well, two, three, well, last presidential election cycle is that the Bloomberg from New York wanted to run for president. I don't know if you heard about this other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And he made a speech in which they asked him something about agriculture. I don't know why, who asked him. And he said, it's very, very simple. All you do is you throw some seed in the ground. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember that. You yeah. throw some seed in the ground, yeah. and then you go back and you go on vacation or whatever, and you come back a couple of months later, and you harvest it, and you sell the seed, and you make a lot of money. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing basically, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, if it was, all, if it was, if it was that simple, we would all be doing it, oh, yeah. right? We'd all be Absolutely. making a lot of money. So the thing is that it's not that simple. I'm just afraid that, because uh, I've seen it in the car industry, people spent a lot, and, and it was the, if you're an independent farm repair shop, I'm going to repeat it, that I would definitely embrace this. But if you feel that this is not your forte or you don't want to have the, uh, you don't want to make the financial investment, you know, anybody who has money in a checkbook can make a financial investment. If you have enough money, you can go buy a Gulfstream jet. That doesn't mean you know how to fly it. You right. know what I'm saying? Exactly. So the thing yeah. basically is, is that, you know, uh, the thing is, you, but the learning curve, and I have to honestly say, is that it is foundational. And doing my podcast, doing my, doing, doing, having my website, doing the radio show, doing work for years at Successful Farming on the TV show is that, and it's no disrespect to anyone, but I would say that the majority of people in the auto repair industry and people in the agricultural or farmers and Hawkeyes all say they honestly don't even know how to properly use a voltmeter, and I'm and I'm and I'm not saying that with any disrespect. Do they have the ability to learn how to use a voltmeter? Yes. Do I have the ability to learn how to fly a Gulfstream jet? Yes. Am I willing to make a commitment to buying a Gulfstream jet, learning how to fly it, insuring and fueling it because I want to fly the Commodity Classic? That makes no sense. Right. Unless I want to be a pilot. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So the, the the thing basically is is that you know the right to repair is wonderful, and the other thing is that even with the right to repair, and you could be a witness to this, and that's why I reference back to the auto industry. You're never going to regain. You're never going to gain full access to that piece of equipment because there's going to be proprietary things that you cannot access because the company itself, the the equipment manufacturer in this today's litigious society doesn't want to have the liability exactly you do yep. something and then you're going to go and you're going to sue case ih or fent or john deere because the thing blew up and took your arm off or caught fire or what have you mm-hmm. and you know coming back to the auto industry is that you could be the you could be electrical engineer you could be you could be, 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 be have all the accolades in the world a hundred thousand dollars worth of diagnostic equipment if your car is that your pickup truck, whatever car, is determined to need a reflash for the airbag, you're not going to be able to do that. They don't give you access to that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because that's a safety issue. And in today's society, you know, a guy puts a calibration in his tractor. He puts it uh, to raise the horsepower. He, he blows that thing up. He throws a rod through the block. All right? He throws a rod through the block. Who is he blaming? Blame the manufacturer. He's blaming who? Yeah. He's blaming the manufacturer. I got this thing, and he's over at the cafe. Because the car industry is the same thing. You know, I mean, and, and the thing is that you see, but what happened also is that in the auto industry, because people were modifying cars and putting calibrations in them, which is the proper proper people with these under the car, you put codes in it. It's not codes, you're changing the calibration. Is that when the car industry for the past 25 years, they put what they call a fingerprint inside the ECU. So if you go there and you re, so you have your diesel pickup truck. And you go, so man, I'm going to turn the booster. I'm going to buy. I'm going to buy a caliber. A, a, they call it a tuner from 
super chips or some other company. Right. I'm going to put it here, and, and I got 100 more horsepower. Well, that, unbeknownst to them, that puts a fingerprint in the ECU. And the fingerprint in the ECU is that if you blow that engine up, blow that transmission, you bring it back under extended warranty, they read that. And they say, ha-ha, buddy, you wasn't here. You reflashed this, even though you reflashed it back to the stock calibration. It puts that fingerprint in the ECU. And I personally don't know this for a fact, but I think that the agricultural community does not have a fingerprint in there yet. And, but it's, that's, that's software. That, yeah. that it will, yeah. and that software code. They don't need your machine to. They don't need your machine to, in, in their shop to put a fingerprint in. Especially with telematics today, mm-hmm. they could put a fingerprint in that. Yeah. So you're gonna. So you're gonna do this, and 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 probably at this particular point, there is no fingerprint in it because people don't have access to it. So what it boils down to is that I'll make it very simplistic. Do I agree with you? And I'm repeating it because people. I don't want people to get a soundbite and say I disagree with it. I'm a hundred. 10% behind the, giving you the opportunity for the right to repair, that that door is not closed on you. There is no bad guy here. The dealership, you know, and a lot of people don't realize, and you could bear witness to this from your dealership experience, is that whether it's a car dealer, equipment dealer, if you have that franchise, the manufacturer comes to you and says that you have to have essential tools yeah. for this piece of equipment, yeah. right? And, you know, you have so the dealer, has to, so let's say whatever, a new combine comes out, a new spray comes out, and there's special tools for it. And the same thing is with the car industry. You need to buy these essential tools because the manufacturer says, hey, I go over there and I buy this you know, $400,000 combine, and this is a special tool you need to do X, Y, Z on it, that you have to have that essential tool. So the dealership, you know, the dealerships make, make a huge investment in essential tools and sending their employees to be educated and trained on this. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is that these essential tools for the most part, are extremely expensive. Yeah, they're real expensive. Because yeah. they, they need to be designed and manufactured at very low volume. It's not an oil filter wrench. Yeah. So the dealership, you know, so the dealer principal looks at it and says, oh man, whatever, you know, uh, I'm a Gleaner dealer. The new S9 combine came out. I got to buy $10,000 for essential tools if I want to sell this. You know what I'm saying? Right. And the thing basically is, is that, and there's an investment there. Anybody with money could write the check. It's what do you do with that tool and have the knowledge and then the other things afterwards. So if I were to, you know, put some closure to this. I agree 100%. Let's let's bring it to market. Let people have access. If I was an independent farm repair facility, then I would explore getting involved in this aspect of the business. All right. The thing, nobody is a bad guy. Nobody's a bad guy. But just know, watch what you wish for, because there is a, a price tag as far as the equipment is concerned and the learning curve. And without mm-hmm. the learning curve and without the ancillary equipment to support this, it's like having four flat tires and you got one new tire on the car. All right. You still got three flat tires and you're going nowhere. And I'm just afraid that people are going to jump on board with this. They're going to spend a lot of money in anticipation of having a problem that they may never have. Right. And I would agree with you, Ray. I, I'm, everybody will tell you, whether it's Deer, CNH, or whoever, that they're, they're full support of, of people having the right to repair what they've, what, they've, what they've bought, right? And to your point, there's that proprietary information that they want to keep the safety side of it, you know? Uh, you, can, you could easily turn a tractor up to make it go 50 miles an hour if you wanted to. It's, that's not a far-fetched thing so those kind of things that you can that they're that they're guarding but what they're asking for what you what you just talked about the diagnostics being able to find the diagnostics and and use diagnostic tools and the, the various things that are all that stuff's available now it's not i mean there's no but for years it's, i mean it's nothing new they're not they're asking for access to stuff that's fully available i mean you want to go buy some of these uh pr- proprietary uh diagnostic tools like service providers, something like that. I mean, there's an investment to do that. There's a, a licensing fee, just like you would if you bought word for your computer. You know what I mean? It's the same exactly. kind of stuff, you know, it's, there's no, there's, there's, it's all available. And so I think I'm going to go back to my previous point. It's not so much that they want to have access to diagnostic schools because they exist. They want access to delete def, turn up those kind of, that, that's, that's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm reading between the lines. That's what I'm seeing because it's just not true what they're saying is not available. No, I, 
I agree. I agree with you 100%. So I shake my head. And then, you know, if people want to go and they say, well, I want to, and I'm going to use the pickup truck because the guy who did this on his pickup truck is going to want to do this on his combine. Oh, yeah. The thing basically is, is that the fact of the matter is that people want to bypass a lot of these emissions, emission equipment, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And the thing is that whereas 1996 was the, the witching year in the car industry because of OBD2, is that, you know, 2007, 2010, 2012, 2013, as the emission control standards were now applied to off-road vehicles to different levels, is that that became the target where people say, well, I want to go, I, I, you know, I did a, a DEF delete on my pickup truck, and the fact of the matter is, is that I like it better, I want to do a DEF delete on my combine, so I want to buy this thing. But, you know, you're coming from the engineering community, from the automotive engineering community, is that this stuff, and I'm not going to say nothing breaks and nothing goes wrong. I'm not going to say that because that would be foolish. All right, but the fact, this stuff is tested, whether it's John Deere, whether it's Ford, whether it's Case IH, this stuff is tested ad nauseum. Because no manufacturer wants to go and produce a product all right, that sells it to a consumer, be it a car or a combine, all right, that becomes problematic. And the thing is that, is there problems? Yes, there are. Historically, most of the time, if it's a factory-issued problem, if it's not a, a, an anomaly, an assembly, like somebody pinched a wire or something like that, or it didn't tighten a bolt, the thing is that usually it's a vendor issue, whereas the vendor changes the specification. So you buy a new something, and all of a sudden the rear main seal starts to leak, you usually track that backwards. At this company, we, they ordered the rear main seals from this company, and they changed the material of the rear main seal. It's not, it's not built. It's like you go into the seed dealer and say, "Well, you know, I want GMO. I want, I want to round up ready corn." And the guy gives you this bag, and you think it's round up ready, and you go in the field and spray it, and spray it with, with glyphosate, and you kill it. So I thought it was round up ready. So the thing basically that usually happens. But really, in all honesty, if you were to look at it, I know that like DEF has been problematic for some people. All right, and things that you know, in regen and in regen cycles of the diesel particulate filter, but I'm not going to say it's operator error because it's not really operator error. What it is, it's maintenance error, because the thing is that people don't recognize that those components that are giving them problem usually the the, the use cycle or the the way they're maintaining the equipment is not falling into line for that protocol, and the thing is, that, and it's causing and it's cause it's causing a problem. And and then they're stuck on. The, I mean, what, I don't know whether it was Corn Warriors or Extreme Ag, one of these shows. Guy, and, and like I said, it's not impossible for you to have a problem. Otherwise, the, the car dealerships and tractor dealerships wouldn't have a service department. Just send the stuff out, and they they would love to close the service department down, right? <laughs> so, uh, right. so the thing basically is that. But historically, you know, if the more complexity when I teach this, the more complexity that you bring into anything mechanically. The most simple piece of the sim- most simple tool, right, is an anvil, right? I'm not even saying a hammer because it's a hammer you can bust a wooden handle on it. An anvil, nothing's going to happen to an anvil, but it doesn't do much. So if you start to add all of these controls, all of these abilities into a piece of farm equipment, then you know in engineering we have an acronym called KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. But once you start to add all of this, you can't follow the KISS acronym because there's more chances of something to go wrong because it has more capabilities. But historically, these, you know, what has happened is that the operator of the equipment doesn't realize that all of these new machines are wonderful. I don't care what brand it is. These new engines and cars and pickup trucks are wonderful. Do some of them have some idiosyncrasies? Yes. But they are very, very maintenance sensitive. They're not the anvil. You can't say, well, I had my, my grandpa had the old JD 4020 or I had an old case combine with a slant six Chrysler. They're very maintenance sensitive. They're very, they need to be maintained properly on time. They're very sensitive to the fluids that go in them. If you're the type of person who says, well, I'm going to use this one oil and everything, and then one hydraulic fluid, everything. And, you know, and years ago, what people don't realize is that as an engineer, you designed 
the piece of equipment or the engine or hydraulic system around the fluid that was available on the market. We changed that now, reverse, and that's why we're getting such performance out of these things, because we're not telling the engineer that you have to design this engine to use green antifreeze. They're designing the engine the way they want it for the most performance, and they're saying to the chemical industry, we need an coolant, an antifreeze that's going to work with these materials inside my engine. And that's why when you look, there's, seven, there's five or six or different antifreeze. There's different hydraulic fluids. All right, you know, John Deere hydraulic fluid versus Case hydraulic fluid versus Fendt hydraulic fluid. The core component of it is going to be the same. Yes, it's a petroleum distillate, but the additive package is going to be specific to that brand. And when it comes to like emission strategies, people, you know, the, the best thing that, you know, if you want, if you want to have a problem with regens and everything, additize your diesel fuel. And I said that more on your show before. You don't need to take the system and throw it in the garbage. Additize your diesel fuel because the combustion event, the cleanliness of that combustion event is going to impact how that regen cycle is and how often it's going to happen. So if you, if you want a right to repair so that you could and spend six or seven thousand dollars to try to shut something off, all right, and then to shut this 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 tier four emissions package off. You could just buy, spend a hundred dollars a year for diesel additive, and and use the right oil, and, and you're not going to have any problem with it. Right. Yeah. Well, good stuff, Ray. Man, this is a this is a hot button issue. There's there's a million ways to, to look at this, and um, it's definitely especially with what you know joe biden did with with the executive orders and those kind of things that it's going to continue to heat up as the uh as the summer goes on and, and well into the uh into the next uh legislative year so ray if folks want to reach out to you and just get more information about what it is you do what's the best way for folks to do that well if they want to reach me personally it's my my email hockrod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com or the best thing is just go to my website and it's farmmachinerydigest.com my podcast is over a hundred technical articles there there's road tests of vehicles there that farmer specific road tests there's a lot of information there uh, it's a quick easy read and I welcome you know welcome people coming to it it's an educational product it's meant to have a transfer of knowledge to the agricultural community where my heart and my passion is right on and when does your farm machinery digest radio show on xm when, what what time does it air it's saturday at 11 a.m eastern all of the time zones are eastern and it was and it's a replay what they call an encore mm-hmm. sunday at 6 p.m eastern is that on their on-demand feature as well that you can go back and look at past episodes uh, I know on your, I believe that it is, I, I honestly, I'm naive to that. I know if I listen to it online or whatever, I could go back one hour, but I, it, it, I'm sure if rural radio was on, it has that feature, then yes, then it would be. But that's a good question to ask me because, uh, I really, I'm not that, I'm not that familiar with, it. but Hey, you know, you are, you were on it yesterday. Yeah. And I missed it, man. I was out cutting trees and I couldn't get, you get away. Trees. I was right, I'll, tree. have to, I'll have to send you the, uh, uh, I didn't. I, I spoke about your 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 moving eye in podcast. Not that I was going to be on it, but your moving eye in podcast. So I think you do a great service for the industry, and it's a great resource. And I would love for my audience to be able to connect with you there because it's uh, you know you need you need all different tools in your toolbox. And you know I'm the I'm the engine guy. I'm the theory guy. The mechanical guy. But you're the business guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I appreciate and, that. And success on the farm or ranch means you need to be hitting in all cylinders, right? Yeah, you can absolutely. Have the best crop yields. If you don't know how to market it, you're going out of business. Mm-hmm. You have the best crop yields. You know how to market it. You get good money, but you blow up all your equipment and you're out of business, right? Yep. So, yep. so it's a it's a three legged stool. But I absolutely. thank you so much for connecting with your audience. And uh, no one's a bad guy. In today's world, the news tries to make people a bad guy. No one is a bad guy, you know. Yep. But to, but just make sure that you know, before you write a check for a piece of diagnostic equipment, make sure you know what you're writing your check for. Absolutely. No, that's good stuff. Well, Ray, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Thank you so much. You have a blessed day. You take care. Bye-bye. All right. We'll see you. Thanks, Casey and Ray. And thanks to Volvo Penta for sponsoring this podcast. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this podcast, we're also tapping into Casey's expertise across all our informational channels. Find more from him in the print magazine and on farm-equipment.com slash ask the expert. 
and you can keep up with the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. For Casey and Ray, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.